Hey folks, Dr. Ed Williams here. Um, as you know, I am uh, passionate about the business of aesthetic medicine. And uh, that's what this podcast is all about. And we talk about various topics. Um, I also have written a book called uh, The um, White Coat Entrepreneur. And as you know, there's all kinds of information on our website, which is Dr. Ed Williams. Edwin Williams, that is, dot com. So uh, leave questions, notes, thoughts there. But um, today, the topic is going to be burning questions from fellows who are leaving leaving their fellowship and going into practice. And joining me today is our current fellow, Dr. Uh, Jaker Satapra, who trained, did his residency at uh, Ohio State, OSU, um, has been a terrific, terrific fellow. But we came up with this topic, you know, burning questions from, from fellows, because so many times at meetings, I have people come up to me and say, Hey, can I, I have a couple minutes of your time? I'm thinking about doing this. I'm thinking about doing this. And a lot of the questions that we've been answering lately are from people who've been in practice for many years, but there are a lot of questions for people who are, um, are just going out and they're either joining a practice or starting as an independent contractor somewhere. They're maybe jo- joining the university. And so I wanted to open this up. And in fact, uh, Jigger, uh, Dr. Satapa here was kind enough to reach out to colleagues of his all around the country and come up with a, que- a list of questions. And in fact, uh, I didn't even want, I don't want to see the list of questions. I want this to be really spontaneous. Um, so, Dr. Satapra, welcome. Well, thank you very much for having me on. We actually have questions from not just uh, all over the United States, but even from uh, our folks up north in Canada. So, That's awesome. Um, well, thank you very much for having me. Sure, yeah. sure. This is, this is by the way, this is fun stuff. This morning, uh, we were uh, finishing a case and Dr. Satapra said, you, uh, you love this stuff, don't you? And I said, I, I really do because I, I've always loved to teach, but uh, this is the next level, being able to teach people to become uh, more impactful in what they're doing in their practice. So let's uh, jump right in. Jager. Perfect, perfect. So this first question is actually from an anonymous um, friend of mine. Um, so in this highly competitive field, we're entering a job market that's really kind of full of sharks that are ready to take advantage of our lack of name recognition, our lack of experience, et cetera. How do you avoid getting taken advantage of? Well, first, first, no. So this is a great question. How do you avoid being taken advantage of when you jump into, um, a, you know, into a very competitive uh, environment? Now, let's first of all, the people that go down this road, I mean, and this is a little bit of a challenge, too, because your competitors are also people who are sharks, right? Because the you didn't get where you are by being the bottom, you know, bottom third of your medical school class. Um, and I can tell you the fellows that make it through our fellowship, uh, you know, they're at the top of the top. So you have that to compete with. And then you have all kinds of vultures out there that are looking, you know, looking to uh, spend your money. Uh, I think the biggest thing to do, if, especially in a private practice setting. Now, if you're joining a group with a senior mentor, um, you know, it's a, you want to follow their lead because likely they've made those mistakes before. But I really, I think the only thing you can really do is to try to get an education. You know, I'm still learning. We got totally burned by marketing. Uh, and, and, and I want to just share with you, not, not too much about this, but just enough to make you realize the problem we have as business people, and as um, 
as surgeons is that our business models kind of screwed up because we are expected to be the technician in order to bring the revenue in. But we're also, it's important for us to be the uh, CEO, if you will. So it it really is a challenging uh, situation compared to, let's say, our friends. I got a friend who runs a big boat business, right? He runs the business every day. He doesn't have to sell. I mean, in the beginning, he may sell. But as it goes on, uh, he's running the business. Why is that a problem? Because we just don't have a lot of time. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think surgeons are uh, particularly at um, uh, at risk here because they are solvers, problem solvers. I got a problem. I want to solve it. OK. And. The problem with that is that we're also fairly optimistic. We didn't go through surgery if we're pessimist, uh, typically, because you have to make decisions and you have to be trust your right. Mm-hmm. So we're set up to fail to some degree. We have a problem. We want to fix it. So what do we do? We interview two or three people. One or one or two of them could be actually a better salesperson, but actually not be a really good business relationship. Mm-hmm. And we buy that service. I guess the advice here and to answer your question is to really, really slow down and and become a business person and try to understand the details. And that goes against everything as a surgeon that we have, because we have a problem. We want to fix it. Right. Right. You want a patient care coordinator, right? You want to go out and you hire one. Are you willing to wait six months and interview 15, 20, 30 people? You know, Google interviews 300 people for every one person they hire. Yet we expect to go out and hire a digital marketing person. We listen to their sales pitch. They sound good and yeah. we buy it. Mm-hmm. But I've seen more, and I think that w- when I look at the business model of so many practices where they fail is overbuying expensive services and overbuying expensive technology that doesn't pay off and not doing their homework because we have a problem we want to solve it to slow down and really do your homework. So I don't know if that's helpful, but, uh, you, you know. Slowing down. Yeah. I mean, slow down. Slow down, do your research on whoever you're joining, if it is a private practice group, or yep. um, I guess getting the advice of mentors like yourself. See someone you trust. Someone you trust. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, you talk a lot about succession planning from the perspectives of, of the owner of the practice who's looking to hopefully retire in X number of years. But I kind of wanted to approach you, uh, or I wanted to ask you to approach the situation more from a junior associate's perspective. Um, how can the junior associate get the senior partner or owner to set up a partnership the right way so at the end of the day, we all win? Well, the best leverage you have, you know, is before you start. So I always say, you know, um, the strength of your negotiation is only as good as plan B. The problem is once you're hired, it's hard to it's harder to have those discussions. So uh, this is a ubiquitous problem um, among our specialty because we're too busy to slow down to take time to work on our business. There's actually a, a good platform out there. There's a lot of good coaching platforms. There's one that's great out there called Strategic Pro- Coach. And what Strategic Coach does is they um, they teach you put in these buffer days if you're a professional. And that buffer days is basically what I say that comes out of the e-myth. 
taking time to work on your business and not just in your business. Now, as a junior person, I mean, it, it's hard because you don't have as much leverage, right? Right. With, with the senior person. Um, but the earlier you can have those discussions and have things set up correctly, the better. And, and it's important that your mentor or whoever you're joining has an open mind because what I get asked this question on a weekly basis from colleagues of mine. In fact, um, my buddy, um, Ivan Wayne, Dr. Ivan Wayne in Oklahoma just asked me this last week. And I said, Ivan, what I wouldn't do is go down the road of meeting with a traditional healthcare attorney in your area or accountant because they're 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 trying to take your practice and fit it into the same kind of model that the cardiology group. Mm-hmm. And so ideally, um, you know, understanding that having set entities where there's corporate stock and all this other stuff, it makes much that's a that's the reason why the corporate world, our business model is very different than a traditional cardiology group or you know, orthopedic group. So I, I guess it's a difficult question because um, you know, how do you get your senior person to set things up correctly? The best way to do it is to get them to do it from day one. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, I mean, it's easy to say that's a real hard thing to do. Yeah. Especially when you want a job. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, you want a job and by the way, I'd be happy to join you, but you need to do this. Here's the, the Achilles heel by most of our colleagues is they wait until it's too late and they don't put enough time into it. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, if they do it correctly, they win too. Exactly. Because exactly. they they're not going to bring someone on for two, three years and then lose them in two, three years, which happens 95% of the time. Right, right. And then you end up wasting a, a bunch of time and ruining relationships and or bringing someone like you into the practice and then competing with them. I wouldn't want to do that. I wouldn't <laughs> want to compete with you. You're, you know, you're a shark. <laughs> I know I'm, I'm old and tired, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to work like that anymore. Uh, well, that kind of leads me into a little segue into a, a little related question as the young guy or gal in town, how do you calculate the value of an existing practice for a buy-in or even to purchase the whole thing? Yeah. Because it is such a different uh, business than a cardiology practice right. or any other business yep. for that matter. So, you know, I went through a, I went through this process years ago. You see this book up here? Valuing a business. <laughs> I read that thing cover to cover and um, you don't want to read it. Okay? <laughs> okay. It's really, but it's actually not that difficult. There is online this thing called, um, Biz, it's biz, it's a, anyway, you can get into it and put healthcare, you can put these different sectors in and it has you figure out, help you figure out value. But let me just give you a real simple example. See, traditional medical practices are valued based on a few things. Accounts receivable. There's actually a formula that you can do zero to 60 or zero to 30, 30, 60, 60, 90. What's in that? And based on historic collections for the practice, if there's 200,000 in that, it's probably worth $78,000. Okay. Then they value the, the material, the um, dollar for dollar medical supplies. So a, a box of four by fours, if it costs a dollar, it's worth a dollar. Then there's the furniture. Well, the problem with the furniture and things like that is that, Most of it's depreciated. So on paper, it's still not worth anything and your partner's asking you to pay for it. And then there's this goodwill thing, which I think is bullshit. 
Okay. And senior practices put this together all the time for medical practices. And this is the traditional buy-in. The reality, that's not how the corporate world works. The corporate world works on price per earnings, which is a, which is a function of, and I'm going to give you an example because I can talk easily over someone's head and they're like, oh, slow down. So price per earnings means what is the what is the price I should pay for the earnings that's coming back from that? Okay. So if you look at the stock market historically, it's about a 7% return. So price per earnings historically in the stock market is 12 to 13 times earnings. Now they have a, a special name that they call it in the accounting is called EBITDA. It's earnings before taxes, interest depreciation. So it's a multiple of EBITDA is typically what you'll pay for stock in a business. Let me just give you an example. A practice is doing a million dollars. And after all the bills are paid, there's a hundred thousand dollars left. So, and that's how I practice. I set all the businesses up that way here. What is a fair market value for that? So the first mistake that most doctors make is when they, they ask me, what should my overhead be? I got a million dollars in revenue. And I say, well, have you taken out the fair market value of your time? What do you mean by that? I say, I make about 400,000. 400, so no, 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 no. Have you taken out the fair market value of your time? Because you have to factor in, in order to get to the price per earnings or the profit, you have to factor in the fair market value of the doctor's time. So if the fair market value, well, what is that? It, it depends on, that's the other question I get. Well, what's the fair market value of the doctor's time? It depends on the business model. So when you're talking about a non-surgical model, the fair market value of the doctor's time is somewhere around 15 to 20% gross or 35 to 40% net. We don't choose to do net because it's a, an accounting disaster. Okay. Imagine if we had to figure in how much do we pay for this syringe of Rastalin versus that syringe, but fair market value. So say you do a million dollars in a non-surgical unit and you take out expenses and now you got you know 350,000 what's the doctor's time worth okay times 0.2 take 200 out and now you got 150 profit that's what that that is what's up for distribution that's what's up for value so what i did here when we set set everything up is i mean i can't expect my partners to pay for the furniture they don't give a damn about the furniture. They don't, do you think they care about the fellow's computer? Do you think they care about the screens in here? All people care about is earnings. Mm -hmm. Okay? That's all people care about. So in a publicly traded sector, right now, you know, technological stocks are trading at 20 to 30 times earnings, which is insane. Because 20 times earnings is a 5% return. You know, 13 times earnings is about a 7 or 8% return. Why will they pay so much more in a pub for publicly traded stock? There's a couple of reasons. One, it's regulated by, the, regulated by the SEC. Okay. I know that the SEC is looking over the shoulder of a publicly traded company. And, and I know that they're in compliance. At least they're supposed to be. They go to jail. So, and I can buy and sell that stock. Mm -hmm. The problem with small businesses, and I know this is long-winded, but you know, I'm getting to the point. A small business is probably only worth five times earnings. Okay? 
So let's get back. And the reason why is because if you're in a minority stock posi- position, like someone joining a practice, you don't necessarily have uh, majority rights. You don't make the big decisions. You're investing in the company. But, you know, as long as you're for a ride around for the free ride or for the ride in the distributions, a five to one times earnings will give you a 20% return. It's pretty damn good. So if my partners believe in me and we have a million dollars of revenue and we have 100000 left over, okay, the value of that's worth about 500000 Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Why is it worth that? Because if I owned, if I owned 10%, if I owned 10% of that and I paid for that and I paid five times earnings. So let's just say I paid, uh, you know, this, the value is, the earnings is $100,000 on a million. Mm-hmm. The value of that is $500,000. And I'm asking my partner to buy 10%. That's worth 50 grand, right? Right. Okay. So he writes a check for 50 grand. You get a bank in a position to do this. Now, at the end of the next year, say we do the same thing. Make a million dollars. All the doctors are paid and you got 100 left over. What's his part of that? What's his portion of the 100,000? He owns 10%. 10,000. Mm-hmm. Okay. 10 over 50 that he paid for is a 20% return. That makes sense. Okay. So you as the investor, I don't know about you, but I can't get 20% return anywhere else. If you, as a senior partner, set your stock up that way, they just keep wanting more. Because if the business is growing, remember the conversation we had this morning? Mm-hmm. Why am I determined to grow? Because everyone wins on the deal. So if things are set up correctly, the junior partner and the senior partner win. You know, you're never going to get that return in the market. And the thing is, and this is why I was so determined to get, I take a sigh of relief even when like slaughter comes on, even if you buy a small percentage of stock, because I know he's committed for a while. Because, you know, even though he could make, he's not going to make that kind of money anywhere else. If you're going to buy a piece of stock at a private company, you're going to be there for a while. Mm-hmm. And Probably so, incentivizes the right behaviors. Uh, and, all of that. Yeah. And actually, what you just said is the bottom line in every single way things should be structured. If it all encourages the right behavior, everybody wins. And the problem I see with so many of my colleagues is what I call the pie plate mentality. Everybody's worried about a piece of the pie. What I want is I want people on my team that are happy to see the pie grow because everybody wins on the deal, whether it's people. And so you can do this as a medical professional because someone joining you, that's not considered a fee split. So attorneys can own part of the practice of the practice of law. Doctors can own part of the practice. And that's why we can't, you know, nurses can't have a piece of equity. So I know that's a complicated thing, but that's, if it's set up correctly, if you just set things up, and this is where so many of us fail, if you just set it up correctly, everybody wins. And there's no reason to want to leave. Yeah. But if you sit down with your partner after 18 months and say, okay, the buy-in is going to be $1.3 million, and I came up with this number because whatever, and and there's your accounting is, that's the other thing is, why are publicly traded companies worth so much because their accounting and their legal is squeaky clean. And that's why we have Kirsten because I can say, here's the books. 
Pokemon and he knows they're accurate. And this mm. is the problem with, you know, and I know I'm going on, but it's just, I, 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 it makes me crazy because so many of our colleagues do this and they, they run all their expenses through the business and they expect their junior partner to pay for that. Mm. Is that fair? So the first thing they have to do is they have to set themselves up and behave like everybody else. You know, you take your compensation just like everybody else and you don't take what's left over, which is a bigger piece of the pie. And that's how people think. So that's, does that's, that make sense? No, that simplifies, that actually clarifies a lot. Yeah. I mean, there's so much that we don't, we don't get taught and we don't really read about up until this point because there wasn't any time. Um, and you know what? I say this over and over and over. Understanding business is not intuitive. And the problem with us is we go through so much education that we think that we can figure this out. And unless you people really get the right education, um, they're just following the lead of other people who have done the same thing wrong. Well, what's the best way to get that necessary information? Is an MBA the right way to go? Is taking some courses? Yeah. So I get asked this question all the time. Should I go get an MBA? Here's my answer. It depends. Um, and the reason, and, and I'm not just going to leave it as vague. I'm going to, I'm going to clarify that a little bit. It depends on what your, what are your career goals? Um, you know, there's an old, there's an old expression that um, a formal education will give, make help you make a living. Self-education will help you make a fortune. And, you know, that's a very entrepreneurial type thing. But however, um, I looked at an MBA and I actually RPI here had an executive MBA. I got accepted the program and I came this close to doing it, but I didn't want I because I didn't want to take the time away from my family. I decided against it. I had to meet every other Friday and Saturday for two years. And Honestly, I was telling my wife this morning, we're sitting there having coffee. I would love to do my MBA just because I love to learn and I find it fascinating. The reality is over the last 25 years, you know, reading the Wall Street Journal every day, I spend tens and tens of thousands of dollars every year with business development stuff that I'm learning. Um, an MBA is great if your goals are to run healthcare system. And that was a conclusion I came to. It wasn't worth my time to try to do that. I mean, I, for example, uh, my buddy, Patrick Byrne, who's now on the board, AFPRS, Patrick's at Hopkins. He's a smart dude. And his goal, uh, you know, is to, to figure a plan B getting out of the, you know, you know, out of, what if I decide to leave Hopkins? What if I decide to another plan? I've been here my whole life. Do I want to go out in private practice? Um, for Patrick and so many of our other colleagues, it makes sense. Uh, Dr. Arup Day, another good friend of mine who's over at Albany Med South Clinical Campus. Arup is climbing the corporate ladder at Albany Med, and it made good sense for him to do, do a formal MBA. Um, to quote Peter Adamson, uh, another colleague, I would, he goes, I would rather do, you know, self-education, self, uh, uh, professional development, business development. He goes, if I, my choice, my kid had a choice to do between that and an MBA, I'd have him go that direction. Um, because the, the reality is an MBA is, uh, is terrific 
But the key part of an MBA, depending on where you go, are the relationships that you meet and the doors that you open. My buddy Vic uh, is a Harvard MBA. He has George Bush's cell phone number. That's the kind of network they provide you there. Okay. So if that's your goal, if your goal is to be a savvy business person, uh, I'd get in business, I'd get involved with business development groups. I get involved with coaching, mentoring platforms that are out there. You know, we happen to have one, but I'm not uh, here to plug that. Um, Learn from people who've been down that road. I would offer one bit of advice though. If you're going to run, I've met MBAs that I can run circles around and when, you know, talking about certain things. So, you know, an MBA in marketing may not necessarily help you as a facial plastic surgeon. I would at least get it, take a a finance course, as I told you this morning, Mm -hmm. and I would seriously consider taking an accounting course. I wish I knew what an accelerated depreciation was, you know, 25, 30 years ago, um, you know, what kind of things you can expense versus depreciate and what a sinking fund was. I've learned those all through the school of hard work knocks. I've, I've learned those by sitting across the table with an accountant and saying, why, why, why? So uh, I don't think that, but I, and I tell you this because I've seen so many of our colleagues as a knee jerk, I just need to get an MBA and they go get an MBA and they're not any better off. Right. So, um, if you truly want to develop your own business, I think there are, um, I have a, I meet with a business coach every single month and I have for many years and I don't just, there's mentoring peer groups. Uh, don't just zone in on one and say, I'm going to do this. There's a lot of different, uh, you know, anytime I'm making a big decision, like, as you know, we're buying a practice, I run it by a few, a few different of my platforms. I don't just run it by one person. Um, and you learn something different from each of them. So self-education is really, really important. Mm-hmm. I think an MBA is great if you want to make it in corporate. If you want to be the CEO of Baxter and you want to leave, because I have a couple friends of mine who are like, I'm, I'm ready to leave medicine, then I think an MBA is a great thing. And I would get, you know, I would get the best MBA you can mm-hmm. for that. But if, you, if you're just looking to grow a small business mm-hmm. um, and make it more of a business, then a finance course, accounting course, anything, any other, you know, me, you, you know, you might, you might want to, you know, years ago, we used to think it was taboo to market. You might want to take a marketing course, you know, marketing course, basically just change your mindset. There's a market out there. And how do I understand that market? It's not about me. It's about what the market wants. You know, I had a friend of mine who ran an engineering, uh, ran a company with a thousand employees. They were all engineers. And I said to him once, what's the toughest part of your job? And he says to get engineers to stop being engineers. He was an engineer himself, but he said, but he said to me, he goes, you know, in our meetings, he goes, they want to keep engineering. And I keep saying, guys, let's, what's the market? So I think maybe a marketing course, but do you need to do a full MBA? Um, what I did, I actually, there's a thing called the 10 day MBA. Uh, and I did that. Mm-hmm. There's a Wall Street, uh, Wall Street Journal has like this 10 day and it's like a little synop- you know, synopsis, like organizational structure, finance, accounting. Mm-hmm. You know, let's face it. If we got through medical school, we're pretty, pretty smart, pretty disciplined. I did it myself. Did you, did you find that useful? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I mean, I, I have a much better understanding of what finance is. You know, a lot of finance is probability and risk and structure. There's almost any no problem you can't solve in business moving forward. With finance, you know, this project we're looking on, this practice we're taking on, 
the big stumbling block is it was going to be a t- capital gains tax for them. So we struck restructured the deal. So the equipment we're going to we're going to lease from them. So there's not cap. So that's just a finance issue. I wouldn't have known that years ago. So uh, understanding finance is important. Do you need an MBA for that? No. I wish if there's somebody out there that's listening that's in high school, I'd get a finance degree and get my medical school prereqs. I think that's going to take because so many of us, so many of us fail on our personal finance too. It's true. So, but not an, an MBA is not necessarily the answer. Gotcha. Oh, that's very helpful. Um, next question comes from Stephen Nogan in uh, Columbus, Ohio, who is a great mentor of mine during uh, residency. Um, he asks, uh, for many recent graduates, it's so difficult to find a job right out of fellowship. Uh, many recent graduates have to make the difficult choice to whether join an ENT group and give up a lot of their the facial plastics that they just spent a year learning or bite the bullet and just go out on your own. You think it makes uh, it still makes sense across the board for residents to pursue this field when there's no guarantee of a job when you're finished? Facial plastic surgery. Facial plastic surgery. Depends on what your goals are, you know. I mean, I was talking to my son in the car today, and, uh, you know, we're here for a short period of time, right? You're dead a long time. Yeah. So I'm going to go big. You know, and if you don't shoot for up here, you're not going to hit up here. Having said, I mean, you know, why not just settle into, you know, I don't know. If you really want to be a facial plastic surgeon, um, there's a whole market that's stratified out there. And uh, those who are those who are uh, very driven and very dedicated uh, are going to be successful. Now. There are some complicating issues, and one of them has to do with medical school debt, as you know. Mm-hmm. It doesn't put you in a position to take a lot of risk. Um, back in the day, I had about 50000 in medical school debt, which is probably equivalent to two or 250 nowadays, which is probably comparable. What I did is I lived well within my means. Uh, I, I was really well within my means, and I just I went out and started a practice. I got a hospital to lend me some money um, be, if I were to take space in their building. And so there are opportunities out there. You know, people say, well, that the opportunity doesn't exist. Um, yeah, it does. Uh, there are other if, – if someone wants to be a facial plastic surgeon, I do believe it's really hard to do so um, by joining an AT group. And, and, um, I don't want to get too far off track with this. Do you need me, Cassie? No, I don't want to get too far off track with this, but the problem really comes down to aging phase. You can be in a 25 person ENT group and you may do one of the partner's wives, blepharoplasties, and you might be doing a bit of rhinoplasty, but you're, it's hard to crack aging phase. And to me, that's the one like rite of passage. When you start doing aging phase, phase, your practice is developing. Um, so, you know, joining someone uh, mitigates some of the risk, but with that, you give up some control. Uh, people can still go out on their own. In fact, to some degree, you could say it's almost easier nowadays because when I went out, it was rhinoplasty, bufferplasty, facelift skin cancer. We didn't have Botox. 
you know, uh, although that market's competitive as well. So there's always going to be competition in the, in the market. And um, what's his name? Steve yeah, Bank. Steve. Steve, you know, I, I know who Steve is because um, my, uh, I know who Steve is because um, he joined her, you know, with uh, doc, from uh, Doc Mike, Mike Sullivan, who's a, a dear friend of mine from years ago. Um, you know, I know Steve's in a good position because uh, he's he's joining a practice where, you know, the successor is leaving. And, and this is actually, I think, is a pearl. If you're looking to join someone, make sure you're looking to join someone who is positioned themselves financially, who's willing to give stuff away, who is willing to give stuff away, Um and doesn't have an ego because some people put themselves in a position where they can give stuff away, but then their ego gets in the way when the junior partner starts getting busy. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, he's Steve's in a Steve's in a good position there because you know Mike is stepping away. Um, and when you go out on your own, there, I don't think people understand the risk of doing that. It's scary. It's real scary. Now. Mm-hmm. What can you do as an interim? You can do a couple of things. You can join a multi-specialty group. Um, because a multi-specialty group, typically they're getting a lot of money on facility fees so they can float you a bigger salary. So I've had one of my fellows join a multi-specialty group for four or five years, live well within their means, pay off all their debt, and then went out on their own. Yeah. Got them so built up a little cushion. You can do the same thing with a hospital system because a hospital system can often float you a nice salary based on the facility fees you're making. You can do it in an ENT group, a big ENT group, uh, providing you get yourself a non-compete. Uh, you, you can have a non-compete and you know you're not going to be restricted, right? Mm-hmm. The problem with that, I will tell you, if you're going to stay in that same geographic, is you will, you will be branded as an ear, nose, and throat physician. And it's really hard to break out of that mold. So if you're going to pick up and move after that, it's one thing. Um, did that answer the question? No, that definitely did. Okay. Definitely did. Um, next question's from Anonymous. Um, what are your thoughts on fellowship compensation? Do you think it's unfair that some fellowships are unpaid or offer minimal assistance with the yearly expenses? Yeah, I do. So back up, you know, when I went through my fellowship uh, and I'm not, um, it was so painful, uh, because we didn't get paid. Uh, back in the day, it was so parochial, it was thought that it was an honor to do the fellowship. We got no compensation at all. Um, and it was uh, almost barbaric. I had to borrow money that year. I had to moonlight. I used to drive out to um, some small town in uh, northwest of Chicago and moonlight for a weekend for 750 bucks just to pay my health insurance. Um, it was a real hardship. Um, I think that there, what we're moving toward with the ACPSC through the Academy is some kind of standardization, which I think would be, you know, do I think it should be a little bit of a sacrifice? I do because it's, if you join, for example, if you join a fellowship that's university based, they're making money on facility fees. They can float a bigger salary. The best cosmetic practices in, in the country or aesthetic practices where you're learning. It's a real target rich environment as far as learning business and learning, you know, um, it's not like you, they, you know, the fellow can really generate a lot of revenue for the practice. So 
it's a, I don't say it's a hardship, but it's definitely an expense. I mean, for example, I have to deal with, I have to justify to my partners, you know, the compensation for the fellow. So, um, you know, what we try to, I try to, you know, look at it from year to year here because I don't want my fellowships to be in the fellows to be the poor house. So as you know, we float housing, mm-hmm. uh, some of the health, you know, part-time and health insurance, um, and a stipend and some other ways to make, you know, moonlighting money. So it's not a total hardship, but it, it's definitely a sacrifice. And I would say if someone's not interested in really passionate about being a facial plastic surgeon, um, it's an opportunity loss. You're losing money that year mm-hmm. because here's the thing is you're losing money on the last year of your practice. If you're going to practice 30 years, right? The year between 29 and 30 is what you're giving up because you're cutting into one year less Right. So I I think there should be some kind of standardization um, Mm -hmm. amongst all the fellowships. Um, I've even heard of some some of these egregious fellowships like in therm or hair where the fellows have to actually pay to do it, which is totally insane, insane, um, you know, and self-serving for Mm -hmm. for the for the fellow. Uh, unethical Shipper. too. I mean, it's the kind of self-selects people who either can come from family money or have a spouse that can financially support them. I mean, let's face it. Some of the fellowships are like that too. I mean, I, I know uh, young fellows who will take a job out and, you know, whatever in Beverly Hills and, but they, they have, they're independently wealthy. Their family's got money. So they float them, you know, and so they can select for a fellow, you know, for a fellowship just because they can afford it. And that's not really fair to the other mm-hmm. people, but, um, you know, life isn't fair, right? Right. One thing you brought up in there that was interesting was uh, that you're just to pay your your health insurance, you had to do this moonlighting. One thing that what was a thought was could the AAFPRS at least offer health insurance through the actual organization to all the fellows, at least mitigate that cost. You know, to just have health insurance. I I think that would be great. I mean, they have the funding would have to come from somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um. But I mean, you know, the ACPSC, which is our new governing body, could mandate that the fellowship directors uh, put a thousand dollars a month into a pool or something that would go toward health insurance. I don't think that's a bad idea. I can tell you that we've made progress, but I can tell you every year when every two or three years when this thing comes up as a baseline salary, uh, we have a couple and I won't name who they are, who stand up and go on and on about the old days when it was an absolute honor to be a fellow and blah, 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 blah. The reality is those individuals are being phased out because they can't chain to chin to the ACP, ACPSC bar. And that's one of the reasons we made the standards higher <laughs> because it, it's going to elevate the level of our fellowships and not have them that are more self-serving. Some of these more parochial fellows. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, <clears throat> next question comes from Matthew Brace up in uh, Guelph, Canada. Um, he actually was one of your 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 former fellows fellow. Um, Who's uh, that? Dr. Uh, Smith oh, okay. uh, fellow from a few years back and I actually got to spend time with him while he was at Ohio State. Um, he asks, if you're starting your own practice, who are the key essential personnel you need to hire first? Mm-hmm. And how do you find and hire the right people? Yeah. So uh, this is a great question, Matthew. Um, this is a great question and, and, and a struggle for all of us. I'll tell you what I've come to believe. A, um, I went through my first couple of years and I hired a managed office manager and um, uh, 
that lasted a couple of years and I decided I was going to be the office manager because my office manager at the time wanted to manage. She didn't actually want to work, you know? So I don't care what the title is after their name. I want to work or be, I want someone who's willing to work uh, by my side. You know, I don't think having a medical assistant is that important from the beginning. I remember talking to my first accountant. He said, Ed, um, you know, you're starting a business. Is it beyond you to go out and say, hey, Mr. Smith, and bring him in the room? I'm like, no. He says, well, then you need to do that. So I think if you have someone who's got really good organizational skills, I don't care what their degree is, good work ethic, uh, is committed to, uh, you know, and basically help you run with that front desk, that's probably more important than anything. You could hire a nurse four hours a week if you want to do procedures. You can hire, I got to a point where I hire, and then I hire a CRNA four hours a week. So, you know, you can sub out a lot of those positions, but what you need is, uh, and again, it doesn't matter whether they're a medical assistant, doesn't matter whether they're a nurse. I don't think, I hate to say this, listen, I have a lot of nurses in my life and we have the most amazing nursing staff now. But the problem with a lot of nurses, you have to teach them how to not be a nurse because they will walk by a ringing phone. You know, yeah. I mean, Susan, when she came on, was very institutionalized and I had to like retrain her because she would walk by a ringing phone. And we're like, we don't let the phone just ring here. <laughs> well, I grew I was in an operating room the last 20 years. I'm like, what, what, do, what do you expect from me? So and that doesn't for that key position or any other positions. I'm not really as concerned about actually the book right here. Who, um, who is the book? And it it comes down to. The most important thing is who you're hiring, not their degree. Because the problem is it here. There we go. Who? One of the best books you'll read. I read a lot of this stuff, right? It's by uh, Jeff Smart and Randy Street. Um, one of the best. I give a lot of homework too. So uh, I would encourage you to read this book. It's extraordinary on hiring. Uh, Larry Bosney, who's the CEO of Honeywell, once said 50% of his life was spent on Hiring, cultivating talent, not strategy, not all the other things that that people think CEOs do. So um, a degree is not as important as the person behind it. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. You want somebody that can. And quite frankly, nurses are expensive. Mm -hmm. You know, you go hire a registered nurse. Most practices can't afford that. So. You want somebody that can kind of wear many as many hats as you yeah. the business needs. Yeah, and you need to be a leader too, and you need to do the same thing. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, when we first opened up the operating rooms downstairs, you know, they always, they still tell the story, but I was down there with I was mopping the floors because uh, you know you got to set an example. You can't say, "Oh, I'm the busy doc. I'm going to be the doctor. I'm going to sit in the corner and you take care of me." But that's what I had in an office manager. I'll tell you a funny story. She was with me for a couple of years and. Ten years later, I was over at the Cheesecake Factory, and a woman waits on my table, and she comes up. She says, oh, Dr. Williams. She goes, do you remember me? I'm like, I didn't remember her. She said to me, I got to tell you something. I I loved you. I mean, I just, I would have done anything, but that woman, Patty, she goes, you know, and she goes, you know, your office manager, and um, I had no idea because I was kind of out of touch, you know, and I didn't. But what I learned in retrospect, I looked back and I had uh, all this turnover at the front desk. It wasn't me. It was my office manager because I didn't delegate that responsibility. I abdicated. I gave it away and didn't hold that person accountable. 
so um, anyway, you, you know, and I, along the lines of turnover, if you're having more than about 10% turnover, you need to really wonder what's going on. Mm -hmm. But anyway, one of the, one of the best pearls that I've, I've learned from you this year was to hire the, the, the most expensive person that you can afford. Yeah. Um, and that that's been something that you've learned. Um, that's as of the last few years with me, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, um, it's, it's hard in a small business to absorb bigger, you know, absorb the bigger salaries, you know? Um, and I've also learned too, cause I, I know a lot of my colleagues and business friends who hire all part-time people, so they don't have to have part-time, you know, part-time benefits. And, but I, I completely disagree with that. I think that the reason, uh, one of my lines is that the reason they give full-time benefits to full-time people is it's worth it because people got their head in the game and they're part of the team. Um, that was probably the first big epiphany I had years ago. And you'll notice we don't have a lot of part-time people. If we have part-time people at some of our nursing that we work around their schedule, you know, mm -hmm. and it's worth it for us. And it's worth it for us. But, but I have, if I have key positions here, I, I want, I want people, I want their, their head in all in. And then we work with them, you know, if they, hey, well, I mean, as you know, Rose went off, had a family and came back and mm -hmm. her kids are in college now, but uh, um, that's how you keep, how you keep good people. But the next thing is when you, when you're looking for a certain higher talented people, the answer isn't just to find the, the cheapest out there. What I like to do is find really good people, give them something they can live on and get, and then give them an opportunity and good people just put it to the bottom line. Mm -hmm. I guess it's just that much harder when you're first starting out and you're it's looking hard. for that, that person. Well, I would, I would look more of an entry level position. Um, and, uh, you know, if the entry level position is paying, you know, or $16 an hour, you know, maybe, you, you know, you go for 17 or 18 and you find the best person you can, but back to the surgeon mentality is, uh, you know, here's how we, okay. So I'll give, give you some more homework. There's this book called top grading about how to hire. And we have that process that we, you know, we teach in our master class, but, Top grading is having the discipline to really slow down when you hire people and top grade them. Because once you bring them on, it may be a year before six months before you find out that they're, you know, that they're not part of your culture. Um, so if I were hiring that one person, I maybe bring the salary a little higher and just be really, really selective. But don't be in a hurry. Because, again, surgeon, I got a problem. I want to fix it. I meet with three people. This one seems nice. They come from a nice family. They come from whatever, and then you hire them. And then three, six months later, you got them. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and they are who you thought you were hiring. Right. Right. Um, and by the way, if if the hire is not working out, make that decision quickly. Don't just hang on forever. Next question comes actually from me. Um, okay. So we continually get the advice fellows or recent graduates um, and I hear this at meetings all the time that we need to avoid complications during our first five years of practice. And it's just like beaten down us. Mm -hmm. But how do you balance that with our eagerness to provide the best possible results for our patients? An example here would be with the extended deep plane facelift, which we do here. Mm -hmm. um, at meetings, they talk about the safety facelift. But after my training here, I know that I'm going to go out there and I want to do exactly what we're doing here, be mm -hmm. as aggressive as possible. Mm -hmm. So this is a, you know, this is a clinical question and I think it's a really good question. You know, how do you, um, 
I think the it, like like many things, the answer is somewhere in between. Uh, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Regan Thomas, who stresses this all the time about the safety lift and the safety this and that. And certainly, you know, what you don't want, especially when you first get in practice, is complications because you can't wear a complication like I can right now. You know, when you're new in practice, you got people across town ready to throw a bucket of rocks at you the minute you have a complication. So um, stay within your comfort zone. First of all, and I, you know, someone like yourself, I think is more than capable of doing, you know, a deep plane facelift based on your training. But if you didn't have that kind of training where you are, don't go to a meeting and see it and go back and start doing it. Find the ideal candidate for, you know, someone whose expectations may not be as high. Um, and the minute you start to get a little bit of chest pain and, you know, it, then you just back off, you know, don't don't push the limit of that dissection. So find the ideal candidate, find the ideal candidate who is, uh, has good, reasonable expectations. Um, and then, you know, but to just play it totally safe, you're not going to evolve as a surgeon. Um, I guess if you, you walk out there, you got a toolbox, right? Mm -hmm. And your goal is at the end of your career to have this huge toolbox. If you continue to just play really safe, you're going to contract your skills. I'll give you an example. Like an old laryngologist is going to two tubes, tonsils, and septums, right? And as I have mentioned to you, I'm constantly challenging myself to just be a little bit better all the time. Um, that comes with a cost, but I can be a little more aggressive than you certainly can because I can afford to wear that complication. So I don't know if that answers your question. I think no. the other, one of the most important things is to basically take your toolbox that you picked up from your mentor and at least the first, first five years do what they did. You know, don't say, Oh, well, my mentor did this. I think I get a little bit better job in the tip. So I'm going to open all my noses. You know what I mean? That, mm -hmm. that doesn't make sense. Why do a fellowship? You know, you're, you know, why do a fellowship and learn from that person? If you're going to change, there's a reason why Dr. Sullivan did it this way for 30 years. You know, mm -hmm. he learned on based on whatever. And, and, you know, I'll tell you, when I was in my practice for the first five to 10 years, I would start to veer off course a little bit and I would come back and I'd say, okay, that's why Dr. Tardy did it that way. So, you know, you don't want to make drastic changes. So again, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. yeah. Stick to what you, what you've learned. Um, so current fellows are about to finish the hardest six plus years of their lives with mm -hmm. residency and fellowship. And, but we're also eager to kind of get out in the workforce and really push ourselves. Mm -hmm. And we're all kind of workaholics at baseline. What advice do you give to the people just graduating about avoiding burnout? So I did a whole podcast on burnout for your interested in listening to it because I think, and I'm not going to get into it, but we are, we are at a much higher risk than most people for burnout for a lot of reasons that I'm not going to go into. Um, one is keep your priorities straight. Uh, and when I say that, uh, I mean your family, make sure that you are to the best that you can, you know, you're, you're home with your family at night and don't use working as an excuse. You've made a lot of excuse, a lot of um, sacrifices to get to this point. Um, you know, your family's only going to put up with so much. Um, 
so you know as far as priorities go make sure you know your family is is probably your number one and most important priority the other priorities is don't focus on don't focus on just making money i've never seen anyone who's just had a lot of money be happy because it's for money's sake um uh, one of my former fellows I talked to a couple of weeks ago and we were texting back and forth and I, you know, I tell you who he is, but he's got his shit together. And he said to me, I'd like to do X, Y, and Z, but I just right now need to focus on my family and being the best surgeon that I can. And I said to him, I'm, I'm so glad that, you know, you got your shit on your shit together because, you know, what I learned from my Mormon fellows, you know, early on was that no success at work justifies failures at home. And if you can keep your priorities straight and your principles straight, um, you know, and that's why it's, that's why living within your means is so important too, when you first get out, because you're not just chasing money. And I've seen colleagues of ours, they start to have this bigger lifestyle and they start to grow their practice and, and then they're, they're stressed about performance and maybe they're compromising their integrity even if it's a little bit, um, it's it's going to come back come back to bite you. So um, I don't know if that answers great, your, great your, your question, but uh, stay grounded, stay focused on you know your moral compass. Mm-hmm. Steve Covey used to talk about the moral compass. Uh, make sure you're uh, and if if there's such thing as bad karma, you know whether you believe in that or not there's really bad karma for taking advantage of people who trust you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people come in and they trust us. You've seen me talk people out of surgery. I can't live with myself. I just did. But unfortunately, you know, if you get yourself in that situation, you can compromise your integrity. So mm-hmm. I, the best thing to do is, you know, keep your priorities straight, make sure you're getting home. Uh, I have to tell you one last little story on that. And uh, my daughter, who was 16 at the time, and I still remember it, I tried to talk her out of medicine because I didn't want her. And I and she said, all I know, because I said to her, Kate, you're going to spend a lot of years. And she said, all I know is you seem to love what you do. And like, in, in, like when we go to bed and you're in your study and you're working, I know you love what you're doing and you never missed any of my basketball games. So, and you know, and I missed a few of them, but in her mind, I always made getting to her games a priority. So um, I don't know if that's, but keep your priorities straight and don't compromise your integrity and don't live beyond your means because that's, then you're just setting yourself up for failure. Right. You know, if you live within your means, one day you wake up and you say, oh, okay, I got a few bucks. But um, if you're trying to keep up with the Joneses and who's got the new Mercedes and who, it just, it's a game you're never going to win. Mm-hmm. One final question. Yeah. Uh, this is from Anonymous. Um, so many recent graduates failed to show up to the, our, our meetings or any meetings during their first few years of practice because they quote unquote can't afford the time away from mm-hmm. seeing patients. Why is it so important for recent graduates to come to meetings other than the obvious educational mm-hmm. benefits? You know, this is very important to me. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so I'm going to get on my soapbox here for the Academy because without the, without the AFPRS or our Academy, and I don't care whether you're a dermatologist or plastic surgeon or facial plastic surgeon, Without our societies, and I got—I actually have a podcast on how to become involved with your national society. But without our society, we don't have advocacy. Um, so yeah, you can get out and you can, um, you know, get your board certification and then just get into your own little world and make a very nice living. But um, you know, 
Priority, priorities about are what you do, not what you say, right? So people say, oh, the academy's a priority, but they don't show up to the meetings. Now, it's a little more difficult when you're in a um, an employment situation because you may only have three weeks off the first year. But um, if you have the flexibility and if you either work for a university or you work for yourself, there's a cost to it. And so here's the cost. I've probably gone to four, five, six, seven meetings a year for the last 30 years. I found nothing more rewarding than uh, contributing to our academy and feeling like I've learned and helped other people along those lines. But really, um, be being in a leadership position to realize that I know the future of where we're going. Um, I always say this, the last hurdle to success, whatever that is, is complacency. And we have overcome so many things as a society that if we become complacent in our future, we will lose ground again and we will be overtaken by some other society. And, you know, I always wanted to feel like at least I did my fair share. So showing up at the meetings. Now, so let's just talk to AFPRS. You know, I can go to another meeting and get educational content. Okay. So going to our academy meeting, may actually may, may not be as good from an educational content point of view as going to the one of the big cosmetic surgery meetings. But I still have a responsibility. I have a, a responsibility to, to our academy to help keep that academy alive. You know, when I was in leadership position at the academy for years, it was on a monthly basis. When I was president, we would get a phone call from someone in Biloxi, Mississippi, who's getting disparaging comments and letters and people taking out ads against them and they're not board certified. And now all of a sudden they want to be involved in the Academy because they have the legal advocacy there to help support them. Um, there are battles going on in every state every year that people don't even know about. Um, and I recently in the aesthetic Think, you know, think tank, someone put up, oh, I just got my academy dues or 1200 bucks. I'm please tell me why I should pay this. And that, of course, that like I, I went batshit because, you know, you just do your share and support the society that fights illegal battles, got you to where you are. So I go back to the same thing. It's hard to go to these meetings. You know, it's hard to do a lot of things in life. But if you are committed to the future of your organization and the succession of your organization, it's imperative that you get involved. People say it's important and then they don't go to the meetings. And this is one of the things that makes me crazy because I have like the best fellows and then they get out and they kind of disappear. Now, I'm also very proud of a lot of my fellows who've gone on to have their own fellowship and are at the academy meetings and running meetings for us, like, you know, Buckingham and Smith and, and Botanigi and some of these guys. But we do see a lot of people that just kind of ride along. I, don't, I never wanted to be someone that was not doing my fair share. So um, I'll get off my soapbox. But I think it's, it's, a, it's a life commitment. You also have to have support at home. I mean, I have had my wife never gives me a hard time for working. But it goes two ways. She's never given me a hard time for working or going to meetings because she knows that I'm not just a workaholic. I'm, you know, I'm always, I've got the big picture in mind. I'm always, my number one goal is my family to make sure that we're, you know, but, um, you know, but she's willing to support that because if I have an opportunity to go for three days instead of six, I go for two or three and I come home mm -hmm. and I don't miss my kid's stuff. 
So it does go both ways. It's a give and take. So I don't know if that answers your question, but uh, I think it's, I would encourage you just like I do with every one of our fellows, please, please, please get to the Academy meetings. Um, Get there, not only, you know, for the meeting, get there a day ahead, go to the committee meetings. That's where you're going to meet people. And next thing you know, and then like, just do a little work. You don't have to do a lot. You show up, you say you're going to do something, you're going to look into this and whatever and report back to the committee chair, do it. The next thing you know, you're being asked to be in the board and do stuff that you don't want to do. Well, hopefully one, one day I can be a fellow that you can speak proudly of. <laughs> I'm very proud of my fellows. I mean, to me, you know, there's probably been nothing more gra- uh, gratifying than having a fellow. And, and quite frankly, if you want a fellow, um, you know, if you love to teach and you want to do that kind of thing, you know, you do have to get involved with the academy. So to me, it's been one of the more gratifying things, you know, other than having children and having fellows and seeing them go on and do great stuff. So we're going to wrap it up. I, uh, thanks Jigger is, uh, these were all spontaneous questions and uh, I hope I gave you some good answers and some food, uh, food for thought and the folks who send in the questions, we really appreciate it. So any more questions, thoughts, send us an email. Uh, Dr. Edwin Williams, Dot com is our website. We have a bunch of podcasts. We got a lot more coming up here. I've got succession planning. Let me see what else I got here. We're going to talk about Cassie. Um, there's a bunch of topics, you know, private practice versus taking a job, how to run a surgery center, uh, real estate holdings, biggest mistakes I've made over the past 27 years, adding technology, you name it, go on and on. Partnership options. How do I uh, add partners to my practice? Um so I really appreciate you joining us. And uh, thanks, Dr. Satapra, for uh, getting us some good questions. Thank you for having me. All right.